Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. In past episodes, we've talked about how language shapes how we think and how the internet is shaping how we speak. But there's another way that speech influences us. It's also how we form social identities, our own and of those around us. How you speak can be an indicator of your race, ethnicity, your class, your socioeconomic status, your education, your geographical location, your age, so many other things about you. And yet we don't often think about how we speak as signaling so many different messages to each other. So at a time when we're listening to a lot of speeches, when we're making decisions about our values and political beliefs, I thought it was important to talk to an expert about the role that language plays in our social world. Katie Kinsler is a professor of psychology at the University of Chicago. Her most recent book is called How You Say It, Why You Talk the Way You Do and What It Says About You. Catherine Kinsler, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here. So in the past on this podcast, we've talked about how language shapes our thinking. And here you are telling us that language also shapes who we are. So can you start by kind of telling us how you got interested in this topic and what made you think that the way that we speak is actually fundamental to who we are? Sure. So if you look out into the world, it's really obvious that we have a tremendous number of social groups. And so it seems to be something that's really fundamental to our human nature, this idea that, um, you know, we like people who are like us. We often divide the world into in-groups and out-groups. Um, and some of them are really prominent and visible, um, race, gender, religion, nationality, political affiliation, and so forth. Um, but something that I think you often hear missing from this list is language. And I think that language really, as you said, really deeply marks both who we are and who we like and sometimes who we don't like. 
Um, so I guess just to share a little personal story of how I started to get into this, um, I was about to go to graduate school where I was studying cognitive development in infants and young children, um, kind of with the goal of understanding how our early cognition is set up and then what happens as we get older as environment shapes that. And I'd spent a little bit of time right before graduate school in uh, traveling in the Balkans, in Croatia, in Serbia, Bosnia. And, um, you know, I I noticed this was a really naive observation that any linguist or anthropologist could tell you, but I noticed that the way people speak really marked them. So I had this textbook, I was taking a language class and it was called Serbo-Croatian. Yet people there would say, I speak Serbian or I speak Croatian or I speak Bosnian. Now this was after a civil war, um, you know, so these were countries in the former Yugoslavia and having an own independent language identity really mapped on to having, you know, an independent national identity. And so this idea of nation state and culture and language, it's just all intertwined. And so when I went to graduate school, I became really interested in understanding, you know, do babies have some notion of this? Now, certainly they don't know anything about national politics and the evolution of language with time, but do they have a fundamental belief that or a fundamental kind of intuition that the way you speak provides some social meaning about who you are. Yeah. I mean, I think that for a lot of people, we can certainly understand the idea that the way that we speak is a marker of what class we belong to. So, you know, from George Bernard Shaw's Pygmalion, uh, you know, to anyone's experience of, you know, if, if you speak more colloquially, you might be talked down to by certain people, et cetera. But your your book has a much deeper suggestion than that, uh, that that really it's not just about education, but much more so about sort of how people identify themselves. Yeah. And I think a lot of it is about childhood, too, which, you know, can correlate with education, but isn't, a, you know, a perfect correlate. So what I mean by that is that languages are learned much easier when we're young, right? We know that. Um, and so in that sense, when you open your mouth, often you're revealing to people who the voices were who were talking to you when you were a child. And so when you put that together, you know, you've got this sort of this ancient source of connection and feeling with people in your native tongue at the same time when somebody speaks in a way that's different from you, um, it's you notice it and you pick it out. So sometimes, though, it makes me wonder that there are, you know, if the way that you speak is pulling opportunities away from you or that you know that it is it is something that causes you to be discriminated against. There is still this sense that it's not something that you necessarily want to fix, right? So I guess, could you speak a little bit to kind of the way in which people who know that the way that they're speaking is harming them in society, but it's like how, how that's so tied to their identity that that's not something that they want to necessarily change. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, a couple of things in response to that. So one is that I think it's absolutely true that language is such a critical part of social life that people have tremendous loyalty to their way of speaking. And in some ways, you know, some of the harshest policies in the world, you know, one way to discriminate against an entire group of people is to attack their language. Um, And so, you know, nations all over the world have created language policies against minority speakers. Um, Tons of 
uh, tons of constitutions in the world protect the rights of minority language speakers. Um, you know, the UN has a resolution against discriminating against people based on being, you know, their language status, which is nice, but of course suggests that if you have to have a law against it, probably that meant, you know, people were doing it. Um, so I think that this is one way to, um, to attack people is to attack their language. At the same time, language feels so personal and fundamental to who you are and how you connect socially and the way your group is that an attack on your language feels like an attack on yourself. Yeah, I mean, I just recently had this experience where um, so I was raised in a Lithuanian family. My parents were exiled during the Second World War. Uh, They were immigrants. I grew up in Canada and my parents spoke exclusively Lithuanian to me during my entire childhood. And it was great because it made me fluent in Lithuanian. And now I have two kids and I've been trying to teach them Lithuanian even. And it's been much more difficult than I ever imagined uh, because I'm a sort of lone island. And so when I had my daughter, who's the second born, I actually hired uh, a nanny uh, for her that is who is Lithuanian. But she's a, a more recent immigrant. And what's been really interesting is that we have very different words that we use for common household things. Like, for example, the, the bathroom, you know, she'll say some version of toilet and I will say some version of outhouse because that's what my <laughs> Because you've got an older me. version, yeah. <laughs> that's right. And so she always laughs at me because she's like, you use these like out of date, you know, terms for everything from butterfly to toilet. And yet I can't like there's a there's a it's like I can't say the modern word because it's not it's I don't I don't feel close to it. You know, it feels like I'm somehow like pretending to be someone else to my daughter. It's weird. That's so interesting. Yeah. I mean, I have a, you know, a bunch of thoughts. You know, one is, of course, about some of my research, which I, you know, love to talk about, about how a situation like what you had is really wonderful that for parents, you know, immigrant parents, often they struggle with this question of should I, you know, maintain the heritage language or not? And it seems to be really beneficial when you do. And there's actually studies of adolescents showing kind of greater closeness between the kid and their family when they're speaking this heritage language. Um, So I think that's really wonderful. And then the second thing you get at is just this idea that language is learned when we're children seem to kind of resonate emotionally with us. And so, you know, that's kind of back to that attack on your language. So, you know, there's studies of bilinguals who speak language, who learn languages at different point in their lives. And, you know, I think you're, you're, you've got just, you know, a subtle bit of this, right? Because you spoke Lithuanian since you were a child, but that the language that you spoke as a child, or perhaps the variant of it feels more emotional and more connected. You know, there's literature on how swear words have more, you know, or more arousal or more arousing people find them worse when they hear them in a childhood language. Hmm. (laughs) That's, that's really interesting. Is that because they 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 have more of an emotional component to it, or is it just that when you were a child, you were told that those words are taboo and you shouldn't say them? Yeah, I mean, it's. I think that because there's a, there's other evidence suggesting probably the more emotional component idea, and so the the other kinds of evidence that that fit with that are things like how people um, also seem to make slightly different moral decisions, which if you're given, I mean, a moral decision, often these are studied in the lab setting. And so it's something like a, you know, a trolley problem where you're making something like a philosophical judgment, like, would you save one person? Or would you save, you know, sacrifice one person to kill five, this kind of moral judgment, and people seem to make really different responses, when they're asked in a language they learned as children versus a language that they learned as an adult. Um, And the 
reason seems to be that, you know, sometimes you can be swayed by your emotions and sometimes you can be swayed by kind of your utilitarian calculator about what feels right or wrong. If you add up all the pluses and cons and kind of a distant, you know, unemotional way. And when you're in a later learned language, people seem to be kind of these, you know, cool utilitarian calculators, as opposed to in a native tongue, you tend to be a little bit more emotional and let your emotions infuse your judgments. So speaking of emotional judgments, you have an entire chapter on how language divides us, which I think is particularly important to talk about uh, during an election year uh, in the U.S. here, uh, where we are very politically divided. Um, can you tell us, uh, tell me a little bit about that? Um, you know, we, we've talked now about how language can be uh, a sort of marker of class, and we know that there are class divisions, but what are some of the other ways in which language can divide us? I think that language divides us in part because we don't realize that it's doing so. And so this is something that I think this kind of conversation is really positive, which is to say, or really important, which is to say that, you know, people, the idea that you could like somebody, choose somebody, think somebody's better or worse based on their language is something that's often very culturally permissible in a way that other forms of bias are not. And often people aren't even maybe aware of this in themselves. Um, so I'll give you, you know, an example going back to since you grew up in Canada, um, you know, going back to some seminal linguistics or psycholinguistic studies in the 1960s in Canada. Um, and, you know, at this, the question was, what do people think about speakers of English versus speakers of French? And at the time, the English speakers, you know, really monopolized the lion's share of economic opportunity in the country. And the question was, you know, if you ask people, what do you think? You know, they'll say things that are really kind of like, oh, we're all one nation or it's not that I'm, you know, prejudiced against somebody who speaks French if I speak English. But then when you give them a measure of just evaluating somebody's speech. And so these, um, you know, there's sort of clever experiments where they'd have the same bilingual person record voices in English and in French. So then the participants who were studied didn't realize that they were actually evaluating the same person in two different languages. And they'd say things like, oh, yeah, that first guy, you know, he sounds kind of smarter and taller and maybe even nicer than the second one. Right. But of course, it's, you know, the English speaker as opposed to the French speaker. And so the English speaking Canadians showed this bias a lot. But even the French speaking Canadians often showed a pro English bias. So they would never say that. Um, and it depended what variable you asked on. So, again, if you're asking something that's more like status, kind of, you'd tend to go more English versus if you're a French speaker and it was more of a you know, a kindness, solidarity, nice kind of variable, they might be slightly more likely to go for a French speaker. But the point is that people aren't always aware of this. So they don't necessarily admit it explicitly. And we go around the world often judging people based on their speech. And I think for many of us, you know, people have no idea that they're doing it. It also can be this sort of really insidious form of bias, because you might think something like, oh, well, it's not that I have anything against that person. It's just they weren't that good at communicating. But then communication gets really complicated because assessments of communication are often completely infused by social biases. And so, you know, there's tons of studies showing that what you can and can't understand or what you think you can and can't understand or what you think you heard and so forth, a lot of that can be impacted by the voice of the person who was telling you something. 
It's so interesting hearing you talk about this because I remember very clearly, I, I grew up uh, in a French immersion program and I remember the teachers making it very clear that they were teaching us French from France and not from Quebec. <laughs> and that if you spoke Quebecois French, it was like considered lesser than, and which is fascinating because it's Canada and Quebec is a part of Canada. And then, of course, if you go to Quebec and you don't speak French, you are also considered lesser than because there was this big move to uh, make sure that French uh, remains a vibrant language in that province. Uh, but as you're talking, I'm just like realizing how bigoted I was against Quebecois people who spoke French, Quebecois French, because literally the the accent would, you know, grate in my ear as like, oh, but that's not Parisian French. So since you, you're, a lot of the research you do is on children, I wanted to ask you about um, what is the truth behind accent development and this idea that, you know, there's a sensitive period, a critical period for language acquisition and then accent. So tell us, tell us what the latest research is on that. Sure. Yeah. So there's one sense in which language is kind of infinitely changeable. And so this is, you know, things like when two people come together, your voices start to accommodate to each other. So if somebody has just like a slightly longer vowel in their speech, something like this, that the other person kind of tries to mimic them a little bit. And it's usually not conscious. It's just the idea that if you're speaking with each other and often if you like each other, if you get along, you just kind of you come together a little bit. But that kind of coming together sort of needs a linguist to detect it. Right. So it's not like a huge change, but it's there. Now, other ways um, people's language change, you know, there's all sorts of ways. So you move to a new place, like you were raised in the South, you move to the North, your social group or your social identity changes in some way, you identify in a new way, like there's lots of different shifts that could happen. Um, and people's voices do change. That said, what's really hard to change is developing a native accent, a native sounding accent in a non-native language. And so, you know, if you grew up speaking English and French and Lithuanian, and then, you know, now you might be better than the average person because it sounds like you're trilingual, at least. Is that, is that right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah, <laughs> to varying degrees, right? Like if yeah. I haven't spoken French for a while, it's hard for me to access it. But generally, I, I would consider myself trilingual. Yeah. Okay. So for a trilingual, it might actually be slightly easier for you to pick up. a. I wouldn't be shocked to like pick up a fourth language in college to some extent, say. Um, but for most people or for many people who are monolingual or even bilingual, say, um, you know, you start to learn, you go to college, you take a French class, you're not going to sound convincingly to anybody like you grew up in Quebec or France, right? And so, though you could master a language as an adult, so it's not to say that you can't learn languages, but the point is that if you, to sound as though you are a native speaker, it almost always requires being exposed to that language as a child. You know, I, th I think that it's interesting that you say that because I feel like, yes, even if my vocabulary is impoverished, when I do go to France, people compliment my French. And I don't think I speak particularly well. I just think I, I, some, I hear it differently. So I can hear it and so is that really what it's about? Is that a child's auditory processing is kind of primed towards hearing sounds that maybe it's more difficult when we're adults and that part of the brain has been established? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And so actually, you know, in this, we sort of get tuned up on native sounds and tuned down on non-native sounds. So, you know, say over the 
course. And you even start to see these changes happen over the first year of life. Now, there's some plasticity after that. You know, if you move somewhere when you're two, you're certainly going to end up growing up to sound like a native speaker. Um, But, you know, there's evidence you take babies and babies seem to be born universal listeners, people sometimes say. And so what that means is that if you play a baby any sort of phonemic contrast, so like a difference, a slight difference between sounds that are meaningful in um, in a language. And so um, so, for instance, you know, some languages will have different D's or T's depending on the articulation in the mouth. And so we say we say duh. Is is a D sound? Whether I put my tongue duh on the top of my lap on the mouth or a little bit further forward duh. So you probably can't hear a difference as an English speaker. I'm probably maybe not even doing it right because this is a contrast you see in Hindi. Um, but my point is that there are certain sounds that we lump together as English speakers as sounding the same, but some other language would differentiate subtleties of those as being meaningfully different. So if you take a baby and the baby can hear all the subtleties in the world, and then you take a one-year-old and the one-year-old picks out the differences that are relevant for the language that they're hearing, and they start to blur the ones that aren't relevant for them. So even in the first year of life, you're kind of getting tuned up to what the sounds are that matter for your language and kind of letting go of the ones that don't matter because they don't matter for your social life. And then as you get older, you know, kids, this, this continues. And so I think in some ways we're remarkably flexible early in life, which is why, like, you know, you could learn three languages as a child. Um, and it's really easy to do so if you're given the right input and the right social context. But at the same time, we lose that ability as we get older. Yeah, it's interesting, though, I think as, as you, you have a whole section in your book about the monolingualism myth, and I think you had some of the same experiences that, that I'm going through now, which is that my daughter, who's almost two, seems delayed in terms of her language acquisition, because she doesn't, it's very hard to understand what she's saying. She doesn't have as many clear words as my son did at, at her age. But and that's because I think we speak to her in Lithuanian all the time. Um, and you didn't to your son or you did? Well, I tried, but it was just me to my son and his his nanny was Portuguese. <laughs> so okay. so he ended up not picking up any Portuguese almost at all and very little Lithuanian, whereas she's getting much more Lithuanian and then English from her brother and her dad. Mm, I um, see. Yeah. Yeah. So I wondered if you could sort of talk about the trajectory of, of uh, language acquisition in bilingual kids. So, I mean, one thing I'll point out is with just like, you know, we say with an N of one, like one kid, it's so hard to know because there's so much variability in typical language development, you know? So for instance, I was talking to a friend the other day who has um, a kid who's around 18 months or so, and she's, you know, she's the fourth born. um, And she, she's just so motorically advanced because she like follows around these other kids and he's like, yeah, she can open the fridge and get her own snack and like stuff that babies aren't typically doing in our culture, you know, because she's the fourth one and there's all these big siblings. But he said, she's not really speaking. And part of it might be that she's getting her communication met through other sources. Part of it might be that she's just so, you know, I wonder she, you're just so off the charts developed in some other areas. I think that, you know, the, the speech might, maybe she's actually just typically developing. It's so it's hard to know. So anyways, just to say it's hard to know from an N of one. But if you look at kids more generally, I think what stands out about bilingual acquisition, one thing that stands out is that the general trajectory is extremely similar. 
And so there's a lot of range of normal in terms of when kids start to, you know, produce language, but sort of the general trajectory, you start, you start recognizing words, you start producing words, um, you start producing two word utterances and so forth. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if, your kids, you know, comprehension is really good too, which is actually often a much better marker of their language processing than their production. If they're understanding you, then they could be communicating and getting their needs met. But, you know, the one place where you do see this difference or, you know, the most typically found difference is that sometimes the vocabulary development for a bilingual or a trilingual kid might kind of seem later than a monolingual kid. And that's definitely nothing to worry about. And if you think about it, your kids actually probably knowing more words than a monolingual kid. If you, you know, if you double count the ones that the kid hears in both languages, right? Like that's actually a lot of words. And so, you know, one way you could measure it is their conceptual vocabulary size. So that means like, do you have a word for dog? It doesn't matter which language it's in, but like, is there something that you reliably call dog? And so basically you just add up how many words how many concepts in the world does your child have a word for? And then you can compare that to a monolingual kid's conceptual vocabulary size. And you find that there's like no difference between bilinguals and monolinguals. And then if you figure for a bilingual, if you got to actually double count, like if you had two words for dog in two different languages, then I think you might actually see that your kid would be learning more words. So, you know, I would say it's completely normal to have a child who is, um, you know, seems like they're not producing as much, but yet they're comprehending. And also they're probably doing some really cool linguistic stuff that you might not even reflect on, which is that, you know, kids around the age of two or so are getting really good at what people call interlocutor sensitivity. So like if someone new comes to your house and you know, imagine you had someone visit who speaks in Lithuanian, your child's going to pretty quickly categorize that person and respond to them accordingly. And so, you know, they're good at sorting out. It's not like they're confusing their two languages. They're really good at sorting out. So in some ways, they're also engaging in um, some linguistic practices that monolingual kids just aren't even thinking about. Well, and that also speaks to the social side, which I want to get to next. Um, but first, I want to just say that, like, I kind of have this joke uh, amongst my our family members that she's just making up her own words because everybody she speaks to, including like her nanny and her mom, who supposedly speak the same language, but have such different vocabulary. And we just make stuff up. So she just makes up her own words. But she thinks that how, how language works. But that counts. If she's reliably calling something something and you she know what like it a, means, yeah. that counts as yeah. a word. Like that is a word. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, like a dog is a whoa, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. So in your afterward, you talk about, um, you know, the, the impact of how we 
uh, how an adult refers to individuals rather than groups of people can affect a child's how they think about a social category. And I think this is a, a really important idea because especially now, like, you know, we are th being much more, uh, a lot of us are being much more careful about the language that we use when we're talking about, say, um, racial justice issues. So for example, I've stopped saying slaves and now I say enslaved people or people who were enslaved or, you know, I don't, I never talk about schizophrenics. I talk about people with schizophrenia and like, you know, sometimes people roll their eyes at these kinds of subtle language things, but I think they're important. And, and reading your afterward, I feel like there's some evidence that it is. So tell us about it. Yeah. So where I think there's the best evidence, although, you know, I do, I absolutely share your intuition there, that it also seems like the kind of thing that for me, it's like feels pretty costless to make those choices in your language. And then if they do make a difference, it seems like that's, you know, a potential benefit. The place where I think that there's really good evidence is in talking about people as a whole group of people versus as individuals. So the way you might think about that is like, imagine, you know, imagine you're, you're reading a children's book and there's this like new group of people. And in fact, I'm kind of modeling my example off um, some research that my colleague Marjorie Rhodes at NYU has done. And so you pick up this book, it's like, say it's some green people. I don't know. They're not anybody you've seen before. Maybe they're cartoonish or aliens or something. And then you read about them and then you see them doing some kind of silly things. And the question is, how do you refer to them? So in her study, I think, I believe they're called Zarpies is this, this new people. So do you say like, oh, look, this Zarpie is doing this weird thing. And look, this other Zarpie is doing this other thing, huh? Or do you say, oh, Zarpies do this. Look at this. Zarpies are now doing that. And so when you kind of use this generic language to refer to people all as being a category versus not, it has a differential meaning to kids. So what they do is that when you find, when you learn that, you know, the Zarpies are all doing this, even if it's something kind of neutral, like, oh, Zarpies hate ice cream. Oh, Zarpies do this weird thing with flowers, whatever they're doing. Kids start to really think about this group as being what we call an essentialized group. So a group where it's like, you think there's something really critical about their essence. You think that they're may be different from you. You think that they're similar to each other. Um, and as I start to talk about those things, you say, oh, okay, that sounds like the kind of group that's probably really different from us. And if you maybe learned one bad thing about one of them, maybe you generalize it to all members of the group. And that's how a lot of stereotypes and prejudice spreads. So, you know, where you can, when you see somebody doing something or when you're learning about what people like, it's much better to talk about people as being individuals and not as being just a member of a group where you might infer that everybody who's in that group is the same. Yeah. So you make this point and, and the impact of this point um, really clearly when you talk about some of your own research on uh, babies and food. <laughs> surprisingly, can you can you tell us about that work? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, I have some studies on um, babies and food. And the question there is how do babies start to categorize people? And so, um, you know, and food is a kind of an interesting example because I think babies start to think a lot about food early on. I have a baby and he's, you know, really interested in food right now. Um, he's nine months old today and like really likes food. And so, they're really attentive of who's eating what, they're thinking about it, they're starting to eat themselves, like it's very interesting. So in some of our studies, what we do is we show babies somebody who eats a food and really likes it versus eats a different food and doesn't like it. And then they see somebody new and the question is, do they anticipate that a new person is going to like the same food or not? 
And so kind of as a baseline, they do. So it seems like if you see two people, you know, one person likes one food, the next person comes in, they seem to expect that that person's going to like the same food. Now I use the word expect, really what we're measuring is their looking time when babies tend to look longer in this kind of experimental setup. It's something that's like a little bit novel or surprising. Imagine um, you saw something kind of weird, you might stare at it. So they find it sort of novel or surprising when a new person has like really different food preferences and likes the thing that somebody else just hated or vice versa. But the interesting thing here is that babies seem to be drawing these kind of social group lines early in life. And so when babies see two people who like each other or who speak the same language, they think that they're going to like the same foods. But when they see two people who they think don't like each other or speak different languages, they start to lose their expectations that they'll like to eat the same thing as if they're kind of starting this early social group categorization early in life. Now, I don't think it's like, I don't think it's, you know, conscious and I don't think that they have, you know, some really like deep adult-like notion of social categories, but I think the building blocks are definitely there. Now, one kind of interesting twist on this is that babies who are raised in multilingual homes seem to think that people who speak different languages do like to eat the same food. So it's almost like their category based on language might just be a little bit broader than a monolingual kid. That's really interesting. So... I kind of want to continue this discussion of how this can affect uh, uh, bias later down in the road. Um, if if we do spend a lot of time categorizing each other on the basis of our accents, on the basis of how we talk, how do we build bridges with between groups of people who have such different ways of expressing themselves, even though they might be speaking the same language? I mean, one thing that I think is helpful is even just having this conversation, even just realizing that you might be judging people or they might be judging you and to kind of try to give people a second chance. Now, I think in communicative contexts, that's all the more critical. So when people communicate, often they have sort of a mistaken view about how communication works. And so this would be something like, okay, you know, I'm going to communicate with you. So I'm going to, I'm going to say my thing and then it's out there in the world. You know, it's like, I nailed it. I said it. Okay, great. Now you just receive it. It's over. Communication accomplished. Like that's kind of, I think, you know, maybe I'm, I'm being, you know, a little bit facetious, but that's kind of the idea when actually communication is often very much two-sided and reciprocal and Sometimes, so first of all, people often make mistakes when they communicate and they overestimate how good a job they did. And so when people are speaking, they often overestimate how much the listener got from what they said, right? And actually, it's interesting, like third-party observers are often better at noticing this. So it's like, if you say some ambiguous stuff and you guess if the person understood it or not, you're going to be more likely to overestimate your effectiveness versus if you're a third-party observer and you watch someone else do the same thing, you're more likely to say, oh, like, I'm not really sure that was communicated. Um, So when we're talking about ourselves, we kind of overestimate our communicative abilities. But the other thing we don't do is we don't realize how much as a listener, it's partially our, our responsibility. So, you know, when somebody doesn't like the accent of the person who's speaking with them, or when they think they're a poor communicator, when they think they're not doing a good job, or they can't communicate, listeners often shut down. And when you shut down, you don't ask follow up questions, you don't engage, you know, you don't ask a 
a question in a way that, you know, kind of helps the other person give the information that they're trying to give. And then you see really divergent, you know, kinds of communications happening that are either like positive and reciprocal and building versus something that kind of shuts down and the listener makes the, then the communicator, actually the person speaking, actually do a worse job communicating. And so I think kind of knowing this about ourselves, like having some, you know, degree of awareness that we're not, when we say something, it's not always a done deal. The listener has to receive it and you might, you know, have to say it again. And likewise, as the listener, knowing that it's partially your responsibility to help the speaker say what they're saying. So one of the things that I think has become more clear is uh, that that there is also a difference in volume, uh, particularly here I'm thinking about um, you know some of the some of the ways in which communication between uh, um, sort of white people and black people can break down is in terms of volume matching, or at least the stereotype of volume that white people you know speak more quietly and black people speak more loudly. Is there any kind of um, first of all, is there any any truth to that? Is that just a stereotype that is not based on actual fact? And and second, is is there a way for us to sort of um, think about or, or the cut, like, how do we navigate this if for, you know, if, if the volume is something that is tied to some kind of uh, a judgment in, in either the listener or the speaker? I don't know about this per se. That's not to say there couldn't be research that, that I don't know about. Um, but I will say that it sounds for sure like something that people could have that belief whether or not it was true. And so, you know, a lot of times we hear what we want to, um, you know, and so, and we, we hear what we think we're going to hear. And so I'm guessing that it probably doesn't matter necessarily if you've got a stereotype, you know, if somebody has this belief and then you notice situations in the world where that matches, or you might even hear a voice differently, depending on what you expect that voice to be like, like you expect maybe um, volume or quiet or whatever else, you're more likely to hear it. Um, You know, there's a particularly, I find a particularly striking study about the intersection of accent and race. Um, Now, this was a study of um, college students and um, college students were asked to rate um, a pretend lecture given by a teaching assistant. Okay, so they just listened to the lecture and then they thought this person was, you know, a graduate student teaching assistant in their in their undergraduate class. And they saw that they saw what was allegedly the face of the person talking and the face either looked white or looked Asian. And then the face and then you heard the lecture and then you had to rate how clear the person was. Now, everybody heard the same lecture, which I believe was recorded by somebody who was a native speaker of English who grew up in Ohio. And for the students who heard that person thinking allegedly that they looked Asian, they were much more likely to say, oh, well, you know, that the speaker kind of had a foreign accent. It was tougher to understand them. Um, And so you can just see this tremendous prejudice, racism, xenophobia, and so forth coming through in people's judgments of somebody's voice. But it wasn't in the voice stimuli, right? It was in the prejudice that they brought to interpreting the voice. Yeah, I mean that that I, I think understanding that and knowing that is one step towards um, mitigating that bias. Or you know, like yeah, sometimes I just think that sometimes you know, especially uh, well, it, it's so hard to say this without just you know being totally awkward and and kind of white about it. But I sometimes think that you know 
white people hide behind uh, feelings of of kind of discomfort and that that, oh, you know, it's like it's hard for me to to relate to this person because, you know, I feel uncomfortable. And so then it's OK because I have, I'm having this emotional reaction, but it's it's not OK. Right? right. Like it's you're still. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so I wondered if there was some studies that you could point to or some advice that you could give for for white people who are struggling to overcome that initial emotional reaction that is unhelpful. Sure. So I think one helpful piece of evidence to know is that there's been studies of people say you bring a white and a black adult into the lab and either they're both participants or maybe the black adult is um, a confederate. So somebody who's part of the science team and, you know, the person interacting with them doesn't realize. And so and then you can put white adults in a situation where they're asked to just talk to this new person who's either white or black. And then you see, okay, are they nervous when you're having this cross-race interaction? And then you kind of up the stakes and you have it be like, here, talk to somebody who's of a different race about racial politics on campus or something that's like hard and uncomfortable. And you do see a lot of white people, um, you know, shying away from the conversation, trying to not talk about it. And then things like, you know, they they start to look down, their nonverbals get weird, right? Like you can imagine this kind of nervousness playing out, but actually when people aren't, you know, aren't trying to be what people say is like, you know, trying to be colorblind, like acting like they don't see race or something like this, when they actually talk about it, often interracial interactions go much better. And so I think it might be helpful to know that, like, if you feel a bit of nervousness, like, probably talking about it is better than shying away and trying to get out of it. Because in general, when people shy away and try to get out of a communication, the other person listening notices. It's like, it's not smooth, right? And so if you're talking to someone who doesn't want to talk to you and is trying to kind of avoid it, you notice. And so I think it's much better to try to communicate as opposed to, you know, try to just awkwardly get out of it. Yeah, I mean, for one thing, it might mitigate the emotions more quickly, so you don't feel as nervous. And for another, it's it's authentic. And I think that that brings people closer, you know, when they're honest with each other. Um, so I want to remind our listeners that Catherine Kinsler's book, How You Say It, Why You Talk the Way You Do, and What It Says About You is available at booksellers everywhere. I also, I, I kind of wanted to end with a, a question for you of... Um, the way that that language now is being affected by all the changes in our society, whether they be, you know, political ones or the pandemic or, you know, just this huge uh, societal change that the entire world is is living through. Um, is there anything from your research that can help us sort of navigate this or avoid, you know, pitfalls? Um, what would be your advice to us? Well, one thing that you know, you mentioned very briefly, we talked about this kind of this monolingual myth that many people have. And so it's this idea that, you know, this kind of nervousness, like, what if another language takes up too much space in my kid's brain, something like that, you know, so that way you would, it would block the other important learning like math and science and reading and whatever else you want your child to learn. Um, but that's not how languages work, right? So you can learn multiple languages and math and science and reading and everything else. Um, but my big concern is that as we get in this crisis where we have a crisis in education, we have a crisis in immigration, we have, you know, a crisis in economy and so forth and so on, like, it's going to be really easy to lose. When we think about an extra language as kind of optional and icing on the cake, as opposed to thinking about multilingual exposure as something that's really beneficial um, and that, you know, actually really helps 
kids. And then when we think about teaching languages early in school as something that's a really critical part of education as opposed to kind of an afterthought. Or when we think about helping kids who say, you know, if you're if you're in a school district that say speaks English, helping kids who are English language learners and speak a different language at home, helping them learn English and so forth. So I just hope that we don't lose sight of the value of multilingualism, multiculturalism, diverse exposure, you know, really any kind of diversity, um, but including linguistic diversity in our lives at this time where it feels like we're shrinking, you know, all of our all of our um, social lives. Yeah. And I just want to follow up on that and say, you know, a lot of people are pointing to this idea that we don't need to learn other languages anymore because we're going to have Google Translate, you know, in a chip in our in our ear or our teeth uh, soon. So we have to worry about it. What, What do you say to those people? Well, I think that learning multiple languages has benefits beyond like, first of all, there are benefits for connecting with people. But even beyond those, some of my research shows that when kids are exposed to multiple languages, they, they're they better able to take the perspective of others. And perspective taking is a really critical hallmark of effective interpersonal communication, um, you know, in many ways. And so I think that this early linguistic exposure is beneficial to kids. Now, some people say, well, like, isn't everyone going to speak English? Like, why not just speak English? And I think it's great. Like, I'm pro-language learning. I think it's really, really great to help kids speak English. But I also think it's really great to help English speakers learn to speak another language. Catherine Kinsler, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thanks so much for having me. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of this show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Cheng, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Raihala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer Ewald, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac, and I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis, and I'll see you next week. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.